morning live devotionals. It is uh, Monday, December, what is it, the, the 13th or the 14th? I should know that. My daughter's birthday was yesterday. Um, so it is the 14th. It's snowy. Uh, it's good to be here with you guys. We are nearing the end of our uh, Monday morning sessions together, whether you're watching on Facebook or on our podcast, which are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Um, we are going to do a devotional next Monday, and that'll be our last for the year. I'm not quite sure if we're going to pick up this specific uh, medium in the new year. Uh, if you have strong opinions on it, um, we'd love to hear from you. But one thing we are going to do is just as we've been working through the F260 Bible reading plan this year as a church and those who are joining, um, we are going to be doing a new Bible reading plan starting January 1st. And so the F260 Bible reading plan, if you did it with us, uh, it was a fairly light reading load. We didn't actually read through the whole Bible, but we did read through, we did read every um, book of the Bible, parts of every book. And so we got familiar with the whole of scripture, but now the next step is to say, okay, this is great. How can we actually read through the Bible together? And the new plan we're going to go through brings us through the whole Bible once and brings us through the Psalms two and a half times. And actually, uh, we're going to be joining the Bible Project's Bible Reading Plan. You might be familiar with, they've got some excellent videos on YouTube working with biblical themes or overviews of books or genres. And they have um, a PDF that is available on our website. They also have an app called Read Scripture. And when you download the app, um, you can, uh, for those of you who are on Facebook right now, I'll show you what the app looks like. Uh, you can actually set a start date in it and, uh, well... Maybe if it'll focus. I uh, set a start date in it, and it, it's got links to all of their helpful videos as we're reading through it as well. And so you can set that start date for January 1st and start reading with us, uh, and that'll be a great time. And our Wednesday Bible reading groups, um, which is like this, but you actually get to participate via video, um, those are going to continue to go through this Bible reading plan. And so we look forward to reading scripture together in 2021 um, and continuing to uh, have that as a centerpiece of our dialogue and discipleship at Sovereign Hope Church. Um, today we are in First uh, Peter chapter 3 and 4. I love the book of First Peter. Um, we chose to, this last spring um, to go through First Peter because it, it got at this idea of what does it look like for the church to be sojourners and strangers or elect exiles, which is how Peter describes it. And little did we know that um, I mean, we started this book back in like February of 2020, which seems like 10 years ago. And if you remember February of 2020, uh, there was nothing affected by COVID at this time yet. Um, and since then, we've gone through uh, an intense season of, of COVID and, and shutdowns and uh, a highly contested election season. So little did we know that actually the public witness of the church was going to be pressed on more in 2020 than it probably has in the last decade. Um, and that's why this book is so important for us, because it's getting at how is the church responding, um, not just to suffering at a physical level like um like a, like a COVID, our bodies are weak, or a cancer level, but actually from a, a level where people are beginning to tell Christians how they ought to act or what they ought to believe about certain things, which may or may not be according to Scripture. And it happens on both sides of the political and cultural spectrum. It's not that one side has uh, the exclusive right and the exclusive wrong. The Bible's always more nuanced. The gospel's always more nuanced than we think. And we praise God for that because that's what allows salvation to be brought to every culture and every group, people group um, by the effort of God's church, regardless of whatever political or cultural structures are in place in those societies. 
And uh, basically the summary we'll look at today, I'm gonna start with just a quick summary, is he starts by looking at husbands and wives and already immediately, um, if you're a Christian who looks at what the Bible says about gender roles, you're already on a side of opposition. Um, the, our culture says that the individual is only free when the inner self um, is free to express themselves however they want to express themselves, uh, that there's no constraints on the individual. And yet the Bible says we are free only when we are found in Christ. And there's true flourishing and true freedom there. And the freedom that comes, the safety that comes, the flourishing that comes for Christians is understanding that God has made us as engendered beings in his image with roles and purposes that are meant to glorify God and serve others with joy. And so what's interesting here is already in our day, um, where in the time of First Peter, these gender roles that he's giving in... Um, and this, this complementarity, this laboring with caring for each other um, was uh, really liberal. And then back then there was a strict divide between male and female. And the female was seen almost only as this subversive kind of tool to be used for the husband's pleasure. Where in scripture, God is saying, no, 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 husband, if you're not caring for your wife in a biblical way, uh, your prayers will be hindered. That's how serious it is. God will not listen to you if you are not uh, understanding and living with your wife as a co-heir in the grace of life. And in today's world, it is flipped to where um, the any idea of submission or service to the wife and the husband, um, as, as scripture calls it, the head, is is to be detestable. And it is on this, this uh, seemingly barbaric uh, uh, kind of caveman view of genders. But in the middle of both of these time stamps is the gospel, which provides flourishing. And then as uh, 1 Peter 3 and 4 continues, it's really interacting. It's ebbing back and forth between what it looks like for the church in the midst of opposition to pursue um, good activity, righteous activity, and yet be persecuted for it, and how they endure in the midst of that. And there's um, a, an homage to Noah and the flood that we'll come back to. There is an example of when your old friends and your old co-workers don't understand why you're not um, engaging in the same sins you once were engaging in now that you are converted. Uh, and then there's a reminder uh, to us that if we ought to suffer, we should suffer for what is good and not for what is evil. We should suffer um, for things that matter in the scheme of things and not things like sin, which don't matter, which are here today and gone tomorrow. And uh, I was reading in uh, uh, my Charles Spurgeon study Bible today. He had this really good quote that kind of prefaces um, our expectations of suffering and opposition that I thought was really helpful. And I want to share that with you. He says, dogs do not usually bark at those who live in the same neighborhood with them but only at strangers. When obscene tongues are lifted against us, we have reason to hope that we are strangers and foreigners to the citizens of this world. And so in other words, there's this great redemptive picture. And um, Peter actually gets at it too. And he says, those who suffer according to the flesh have ceased to sin. In other words, what he's saying, he's not saying that if we've ever been persecuted, we're sinless. But he's saying, if you're being persecuted for pursuing righteousness, praise God that you're not sinning. Because there is a judgment, there is um, a consequence more severe than opposition from sinful people, and that is opposition from God based off of our own sin. And so there's this wonderful hope that actually as we um, rub up against those uncomfortable facets of culture, and as the church has done in, in, uh, throughout time and history, 
Uh, it's a reminder that, that what the world is responding to is actually Christ in us. And that is an immense hope for the Christian. And that is what leads us into our three questions of uh, looking up. What does this passage teach us about God, the gospel, the Trinity, um, redemption? Looking in, what does this passage teach us about ourselves? And then looking um, out, how does this passage change the way we live? And so we're going to begin by looking up. And the first thing we see here is like the entire backdrop of First Peter is Peter talking to these elect exiles. And I love that tension. We talked about this when we preached through First Peter, um, that there, there's this, this wonderful duality in there. We are exiles. We are in this world, but we don't belong to this world. We belong um, to another. And yet in that uh, identity crisis, we are elect exiles. We are chosen by God. And so we belong to God in this world, and yet we don't belong fully to this world. And so there is both comfort and conflict in our identity as Christians, which is why I love what Peter is doing in this text. Because if you've read it already, if you haven't, I hope that you will, because um, the Bible has better things to say than I do. Uh, what we see supremely in First Peter 3 and 4 about God is that Christ is supreme in the midst of all of our suffering and all of our opposition. Um, and this is really important because we see in 1 John that John says that no one has ever seen God, but the only God has made him known. And so, in other words, the way in which we see God um, is through Jesus Christ. That's the clearest way Hebrews 1 says that. That's the clearest way where we get to see God. There is no Christianity apart from Jesus. There is no worship of God apart from Christ that is true. And it's kind of like this, um, if you've seen uh, movies or read books of guys who are off away um, during the war, and when things are hard, they're maybe in a trench in World War One, and they pull out this picture, this faded picture with curled edges because they've been holding it so much of their kid or of their wife. And in the midst of all this conflict, they cling to this um, portrait of their hope, their love, um, their beloved. And uh, that's for Christians in the face of suffering. What Peter's holding, he's giving us this wallet-sized picture of Jesus so that when we are in the trenches of life, we might take hope that we don't know a vague image of Jesus, but we know him with certainty. We know everything about this Christ that brings us hope when we're pressed. Because if we don't have that hope when we're pressed, then um, we're in trouble. Because the hope of this world and the hope of ourself can't endure when pressed up against. But the hope that stands in Christ as being supreme in all of it is actually sufficient enough to bring us a, a, a profound sense of peace and a readiness to obey God in the midst of it. So we must learn to see Christ. We must learn to have that wallet-sized picture that we can pull out when things are hard um, instead of turning inward or instead of turning outward. And so we see this supremacy of Christ in the face of suffering. Um, kind of presented in two ways. Peter is going to talk much about Christ's suffering, and he's also going to talk much of Christ's victory. And that's the wonderful reality of Christianity, is we are not stoic sufferers who suffer for the sake of suffering. We are called to suffer for a season, but there is a redemptive hope. Um, suffering is not part of God's ideal. We will not suffer in heaven. And so suffering only serves God's purpose in that it actually brings us uh, a present foretaste and a future reality of our reward that's in suffering. And we see this uh, in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And listen, because it's going to start with suffering, and it's going to get into something 
Uh, it's kind of difficult to understand when no one is flood, but it's going to conclude with this picture of victory. Maybe I'll give you a little sense of it as we go through here. So verse 18 says, uh, after talking about our suffering, he says, For Christ also suffered once for, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so here we see that Christ also suffered for doing good. And so what we take hope from is, is in the midst of opposition, when we are pursuing, um, and we'll just, we'll, we'll tie to what this starts with, gender roles, extremely unpopular in our culture, if we cling to the reality um, that gender is A, a thing, and B, that God has a say-so in how we live as male and how we live as female, how we live as husbands or as wives, um, we face this sense of opposition. And we have a tendency, uh, we are so hooked on comfort, I'll talk about this a little later, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. We're so hooked on comfort that we often think that if we are, face opposition of any kind, that something's wrong. But here we see that Jesus actually suffered, and Jesus did nothing wrong. Jesus suffered because he pursued righteousness. And so he's tying, he's saying, look, Christ suffered. Christ was perfect and still suffered. Um, but then he, he begins to talk about, he, he was put to death in the flesh, and there's this, this homage to his crucifixion in there. And then Peter brings in this, Peter loves talking about uh, Noah and the flood, and he talks about uh, Christ going and proclaiming to the spirits who were in prison, the same spirits that didn't obey in Noah's time. And this is kind of, um, Peter is deeply steeped, obviously, in Jewish uh, history. And so he's talking about um, this kind of interesting scene uh, that he talks about in both both First and Second Peter, where they were angels in the days of Noah that were having illicit sexual relationships with women. We don't know much about it. it. Sounds weird, but God tells us about it. And those angels were completely defying um, God's authority. And what uh, is being said here is that Christ um, proclaimed his victory over not only um, the physical spaces, but the spiritual spaces. When he rose from the dead, it is this cosmic victory lap over those who rebelled spiritually, who are in prison. Christ defeated the prison of death. Christ is no longer in bondage to it. And we see this wonderful triumph where at the end. He says he is now in, in heaven at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, when we see Christ, we see that suffering A, happens even when we're pursuing righteousness. And B is not the end of our story because if we share in Christ's resurrection, we will not have any shame. We won't have any shame for what it is we're suffering because we will have triumphed over, uh, to use you know, 20, uh, 21st century uh, millennial language, uh, we, we will uh, be vindicated over the haters. Um, the people who oppose Christ will not be on the right side of history. But those who are opposed with Christ will be on the right side. We'll be vindicated. We have nothing to fear um, because Christ has proclaimed victory over both the spiritual and the physical realm. We also see the, the supremacy of Christ right after that. Verse chapter 4 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh 
has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so actually in suffering, not only is there vindication, but in suffering, there is sanctification. As Christ suffered, um, as we see Christ suffering so that he might be glorified, we see us suffering so that we might be sanctified. Um, and Christ gives this wonderful picture that God's suffering for him led to this purification um, in a sense that happened as he rose from the dead. Christ didn't need to be purified, um, but there is this glorification that happened when he was risen from the dead. And there's this, this sanctification that happens in us as, as we are uh, afflicted and oppressed for righteousness, um, that we are showing that we are living in freedom for the will of God and not in bondage to the will of man. We also see in verse 11 of chapter 4, um, whoever speaks, so talking about the church here, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ is supreme inside the church. We also see this in verse 13 of chapter 4. Uh, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so our hope in the midst of suffering is Christ, that when Christ appears, Colossians chapter 3, um, that, that uh, when Christ who is our life appears, we might be found with him in glory. If we don't understand that Christ suffered far more, Christ didn't just suffer opposition from sinners, Christ suffered for your sin before God. If we don't understand that, then we have no hope in suffering. If we don't see Jesus suffering in our place, um, but then also dying for the sins of humanity, being raised again according to God's plan, we will never actually have the hope we need to endure suffering because suffering won't make sense and neither will the hope of redemption make sense. But when we see what Christ has done, we get to actually identify with Christ and understand that we are experiencing uh, only a shadow of what Christ experienced and it was difficult for him, but he managed to obey. And it was difficult for him, but he came out on the other side um, uh, glorified and uh, found at peace because of his faith in God. And so we too, when we suffer, can trust that, that suffering is not the end. That opposition is not the end. That it is a present reality that Christians face, but God actually has something better planned for us. Um, and so this is really important to see Jesus as a hope for suffering and not just an ideology. Because when we look in, um, when we start looking at ourselves, what we see is, is just vague Christianity or the vague ideology of Christian morality. It doesn't endure us. It can't hold up to us. And what we see in this text is um, Peter is trying to make Christians comfortable with the reality of discomfort. And again, he's not specific, he's not talking about a Romans 8 discomfort. And that's discomfort in a general sense where the whole world, when we stub our toe, we're, we're being reminded that this world is broken because of sin. He's not talking about that natural um, discomfort. He's actually talking about opposition from our coworkers, from our neighbors, from those um, who are surprised when we no longer sin as we once sinned. And uh, this is something that's, stood out to me when we were in Colossians chapter three, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. And when we see this, we see in first Peter, this opposition that is surrounding everybody. Don't suffer as a murderer, but suffer as a Christian and trust yourself, <clears throat> your souls to a faithful creator while doing good, while you are suffering. Um, there is this sense where our hearts, when we face opposition, 
for what we believe, our hearts will naturally seek to find peace. And if we don't actually think that Jesus and his gospel can bring us peace, then we will make whatever sacrifice we need to the gods of this world to find peace. And you see this so many times in literature and in movies. Uh, you see it in Narnia with Edmund and uh, the, the, the White Witch in that uh, she get, offers him peace if, through her Turkish delights. Peace. If all of this, um, all of this tension with her siblings with, or with his siblings, all of this um, vying for who is the greatest, that will go away if he will just come and eat the queen's Turkish delights and he will be at peace. But as you read that story, there's no peace in Edmund's heart. And neither is there peace with this world. This world will tell us if we, um, we can keep the Christian name, if we deny Christ's lordship over our lives, if we deny the bits of doctrine that are untenable or unacceptable in our culture, the world will accept us. But the truth is they won't. They won't accept us. And if you are able to be accepted by the world apart from Christ, then you are no longer accepted in Christ. And there is no peace there. And so our hearts are longing to find peace um, in anything. And, and I think there are thousands of ways in my heart where I daily um, try to minimize or justify uh, aspects of Christ's lordship in my life so that I might maybe find peace with those who are on social media, those in my neighborhood, those um, perhaps for you in your workplace. And there's a sense where uh, we should think that in following Jesus, uh, People will see our good works and say, hey, this is really kind. These people, I disagree with them, but they're being loving. They're being gracious. They're being forgiving. They're being reasonable. But what Peter's going to say in this in chapter 5 when we get there is don't be surprised when they don't think that. Don't be surprised when we are living righteously and they hate us and they respond angrily towards us. And why is that? Because they are at odds with Christ who dwells in us. And so we ought to be optimistic that as we continue to follow Jesus, that some people might actually see that and be struck by it. But we should also be realistic in that as the world hates Jesus, they will also hate Jesus as followers. And so we could choose to try to dress up our Christianity, um, to try to fit in with certain social sins that seem more acceptable or by cutting ties with specific doctrines that seem unacceptable. But at the end, that just brings you peace nowhere. But it's only when we cling to Christ and continue to do good that we suffer not as a meddler or as a sinner, but we suffer as a Christian and we glorify God in that name. That's what Peter says in chapter four, verse 16. And this, this discomfort that we have when our coworkers and our friends or our culture, the Twitter pundits start um, rubbing up against us in an uncomfortable way. And we begin to be seen as the irritant of society. We are reminded of two things. One, that Christ's peace is the only peace we have. That because Christ was raised from the dead and because baptism signifies um, that death in this world is only a, a shadow of the life that is in Christ. Um, so that's first, that we are reminded of uh, Christ's victory in that. But second, we're reminded of our role as a witness. And we see this in verses 13 through 17 of chapter uh chapter 3, where he says this, he says, uh, Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, that is those who oppress us, or those who oppose us. You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That is continuing to find your peace in Christ. 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so as this happens, we are reminded of our hope and we are called to respond with gentleness and respect, not with um, venom and anger and uh, uh, hostility, even though we'll want to, that'll be our knee-jerk reaction. But we actually saw before this, the example of Christ um, suffering, but there's not deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. He did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What a wonderful reminder that we who are Christian never suffer without hope. And it's sometimes when we are called to suffer that our world asks us for our hope. It asks us for the reason that we are made to be seen as fools in the public sphere. And that's where we trust in Jesus to endure us. And that's actually where we trust with the message of Jesus to save even those who persecute us. And our last point in looking out this morning is uh, what we see in the latter part of chapter four, where he begins to say this in verse seven, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so there's this reality, and it starts back actually with the husbands and wives, where wives are called to, in faith um, and with the adornment of hope in Jesus, submit to their husbands, and where husbands are called to live in an understanding way with their wives as co-heirs of grace. Um, and now we see in the church here is that there is hostility without, but within the community of faith. Peter is saying there ought to be love, humility, forgiveness, and understanding. And this is a time where um, what I see is happening, because really easy, is I, I actually see more Christians, this is on social media, I understand social media is not the world. And uh, maybe that's uh, short-sightedness on my part. But uh, in a COVID world, it's almost often where we get a lot of our interaction, is I actually see more Christians um, at odds with each other than I see them at odds with the world. And I think that that, that seed of, of uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, that, that, that seed of discontent towards each other is actually a tool that Satan is using. When the Christian church is beginning to be pressed, we're, our, our culture is becoming increasingly post-Christian. What we believe and who we worship is becoming increasingly odd. That doesn't mean that, um, that, that God doesn't have a use for it. That doesn't mean that, act, that there's actually not more opportunities for the church inside of it. But what that does mean is that um, there is going to be more opposition from the outside world towards the church than there has been in, in much of American history, at least in a visible sense. And I think what Satan wants to do is he wants to pit Christian against Christian so that Christians see those with different political views or Christians see those um, with different uh, views of what church is or what preaching is or what justice is and wants to pit Christians against Christians. And the world will love to watch that happen. But what we are called to do inside the church is we are called to bear with one another, to love one another since love covers a multitude of sins. And what does that mean? That we as Christians are going to sin against each other. 
that we as Christians aren't always going to see eye to eye, that there will be someone who is potentially right and someone who is potentially wrong, and yet those people are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be reminded as the church that there will be real enemies to our faith. But those real enemies are not our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think of um, one thing that I struggle with as being um, having my mind wired the way, way I was and being theologically inclined that people who don't agree with my theology 100% are the enemies of uh, my philosophy of ministry or the enemies of my Reformed Baptist faith. And it's true that um, we are called to defend what is right and good and true, but it's also true that there are going to be far more people. Um, there are going to be many people who disagree with certain aspects of Orthodox or who disagree inside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity on smaller things um, that will be in heaven with me. And therefore, they are my friends. They are those who I'm called to love. They are those who I'm called to work with. They are those who I'm called to care for so that we can withstand what is outside. If, if Satan is allowed to sow discord inside the church and it is to go unchecked in the name of rightness instead of endured in the name of love, then the church will endure far more harm than we would if we were united in Christ and opposed to what is outside. And so it's a good check for my heart. Um, in this. And I think it's a really good follow-up to something Johnny said in the sermon yesterday, where he said, it's easy for us to wonder in a disconnected church, how is so-and-so in the church? And he said, take this opportunity to no longer wonder, but to reach out, um, to text them, to call them, to offer to have, um, even if I loathe I'm so tired of this medium of Zoom meetings um, and, and Google Hangouts. But he says, set one up because it's greater to love and to care and to reach out um, than it is to assume that that's happening uh, on its own. And the other thing we see here is that uh, God gives varied gifts of grace to his whole church. And so that's going back to even the gender role issue we see at the beginning of this text where society says you're only free if you are um, free to do exactly what you want to do when you want to do it. And if God says that A, gender exists, and B, he has a plan for it, we feel immediately constrained. But what we see here is that inside of God's parameters, there's wonderful freedom. In fact, we are more free. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. God has given us not a cookie cutter shape of what it looks like to be a Christian. Instead, through his Holy Spirit and conversion, he has given each of us varied graces. The gift God has given you to serve those around you is different than what he's given me. There is freedom. There is flourishing. The gospel is so big that it saves a corporate people, but the gospel is so intimate that it, 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 equips the individual and it doesn't flat it doesn't elevate the individual um and uh to the uh detriment of the corporate whole and it doesn't elevate the corporate whole to the detriment of the individual the gospel maintains both because jesus is both the huge king of his people but also the loving savior of each saint and so god has equipped you today to actually contribute to the encouragement and love of the church in a time where there is becoming increasing uh, vocal confusion and even sometimes hostility to how the church is seen, spoken of, and understood in our culture. So I pray that uh, I, I don't want to stretch what's going on in America to any hyperbol hyperbolic reality, but what I do want to do is what Peter's doing, just to prepare us, prepare our hearts to find peace in Christ and love with one another as we continue to pursue righteousness, even when that is met by opposition in our world. So would you pray with me?
dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you that uh, we are learning um, through the, the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit in your word. We are learning from uh, men and churches thousands of years ago in different languages and in different cultures that are relevant to us today. And so Lord, I pray that we see that if the gospel endured the church then, it can endure us now. If the gospel united a church in love then, it can unite us now. And if the gospel um, brought enduring hope in the face of uh, opposition that makes us want to run to false idols for peace, that we might do the same and find our peace in you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ with baptism as a reminder that we are sealed not for death but for life. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Have a good Monday, and we will see you next week for our last Monday morning devotional.